This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Sustainability, the Business Opportunity of the 21st Century. We are at a moment of enormous global change and even greater business opportunity. Climate change is the single biggest commercial opportunity of our time, and this podcast sustainability guru Richard Blundell and myself explore the opportunities open to businesses which embrace sustainability from the business perspective. Find out why sustainability is the greatest business opportunity of the 21st century. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox back with Richard Blundell for another episode. Richard, first of all, welcome back. Thank you so much, Tom. So good to see you. Richard, we are recording this in the middle of a climate summit entitled COP28, which began actually, I believe, today in Dubai. Today. A little bit earlier than we were recording. Nevertheless, we're on the same day on the global calendar. And I wanted to maybe use this opportunity to ask you to Explore what this is, what might happen, the significance of it going forward. So could you start off by telling us what is the COP28, if that's the right way to characterize it, uh, climate uh, summit? Yeah. So it's, it's typically called, is a conference of parties. This is the 28th conference of parties on the issue of climate change. The conference of parties brings together all of the leading, all of the members of the the United Nations to discuss whatever the topic is that's being discussed. There was, rec- there was last year, there was a COP15 on biodiversity, which was held in Montreal. So that was the 15th conference of parties on that topic. This is the 28th conference of parties on the topic of, of climate change. And so this, so the, the, there are two really important goals for this, this COP. The first one is this the first time we're actually going to take stock of people's or countries' performance to their targets. And those targets are the, the ultimately the zero emission targets by 2050, but they've got a 2030 target as well, which is a 50% reduction before getting to another 50% re- reduction accomplished by 2050. So the Paris Accord, which was COP25, the 25th conference of parties that was obviously convened in Paris and agreed on this notion of a zero of a, a zero emission target by 2050 with the 2030 sort of interim milestone was meant to keep global warming below two degrees preferably at 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, post industrial revolution so back to the 1700s during them that's the baseline if you like and so if you want to think about it in terms of like carbon in the atmosphere which is what the scientists think of it is roughly around the pre-industrial revolution carbon in the atmosphere was about 280 parts per million we at paris as we got close to paris that that number for the ceiling of 400 parts per million, sorry, was breached for the first time. And it was a real cause for concern because that there's a, an absolute, what's the right word? It's highly correlated between the amount of CO2, obviously that is produced by us and put into the atmosphere. And so 
where we are at this COP is we're close to 424 parts per million. So there's an annual increase, roughly, it's over 1%. I think it's 1 1.3 to 1.4%. We will produce this year more CO2 in the atmosphere than we ever have produced before. And of course, that is after the Paris Accord, which was the, the agreement where all countries had set targets to reduce their carbon emissions and to move to a lower carbon economy. And the most important sort of objective of this COP is to take stock. So we're going to, everyone's going to report out how miserably they failed because they all have in actually delivering towards their 2030 and ultimately their 2050 targets. The other big thing that's being discussed here, which started in Glasgow, which was COP, I think, or 26, I'm losing count with all these things, which was after Paris was this need for a loss and damage fund that should be put together by the rich companies country, sorry, to support and finance um, both the transition to a lower carbon economy and the losses incurred through mostly weather-related damage in the southern hemisphere, in the poorer countries. And that was then talked about again in Sham el-Sheikh, which was the last COP in Egypt, where they again failed really miserably to actually come up with a target. So today the announcement, hot off the press, but I've seen two announcements. So just to give you, Glasgow proposed a $100 billion per year loss and damage fund. They discovered at Jamal Sheikh that the actual number required to get us to any kind of adaptation and adjust for the damages and the transition was somewhere between a trillion, more likely 1.7 trillion per year through 2030. So they're saying, sorry, let me restate it. They're saying that a trillion dollars every year between now and 2030, after 2030, one estimated to be $1.7 trillion a year. The governments today have pledged somewhere between 270 to 400 million dollars to set up this fund. So we've gone from 100 billion a year to over a trillion a year. And today, governments have pledged somewhere between two, I, I was, was conflicting reports, 270 to 400 million. So it's nowhere close to what, what is required. It is, it is, it is a failure on catastrophic, catastrophic terms. But then there's, and let me just add before I finish this, then there's the other concern, which has been recently raised in the, fa in the last couple of weeks leading, in, leading up to this conference, which is the conference lead, the head of the conference, is a, a sheikh named Al-Jabbar, who is also the owner of the largest oil and gas company in the Emirates. And there is and has been apparently accusations made that he is using this conference as a way to have private meetings to actually sell as much of his product from his oil and gas industry as possible. He and his company are given what we know, and the, the officials from the Emirates and the COP have said, this is not the case. 
and private meetings which they've held are private and we're not going to disclose what the conversations are in those meetings. The speculation is that he's going to profit wildly from having these com- these commercial conversations to sell his oil and gas products and that his company alone is projected to be one of the, if not the largest polluter and contributor to greenhouse gases in the next, co- in the coming right out of this conference and also is a producer of very dirty fuels. So the thing to understand is that the oil and gas industry, which is by far the largest contributor to, or the fossil fuel industry is by far the largest contributor to, uh, to climate change or to CO2, is also one of the most subsidized industries in the world. So let me just tell you uh, what the subsidized, the amount of subsidy that industry globally received last year. They received over 1.7 trillion, no, sorry, they received $7 trillion in subsidies last year, which is an industry that is making money hand over fist and has been particularly since COVID. And that is that represents 7.1% of global GDP. So here you have the most polluting industry on the planet being one of the most subsidized industries globally. And then you've got an incredibly important meeting of all of the countries in the world to talk about climate change. And the right before this happened, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, came out with a report, an updated report on where we are trending towards, given the current information that we have on fossil fuels, or sorry, CO2 production, and the increase in CO2 production, so largest increase ever this year, hottest year on the on record this year, is that we are trending towards a 2.7, potentially a 2.9 degree uh, world by 2100, by the end of the century, which is by all intents purposes from all scientists and, and people who are qualified to make comments about this is not good. It actually is fairly catastrophic as a set of outcomes. So that's what we're looking at. I hope that helps. So how did this gentleman become the chair of this conference? I So I, that's a really good question. I don't really have a good answer for you. I, I My understanding is that the COP obviously rotates to different parts of the world so that they have a good representation from different ethnicities, communities, regions, etc. And I'm not sure how the COP, the, it's a government sort of award, if you like, the conference is awarded to a country. And given how that part of the world is governed, I assume that the ruler, who is also the owner of the largest oil and gas company in the region, became responsible for putting on this conference or for hosting it, sorry. Well, Dubai is an emirate, so they have an emir who governs the country. So I suppose it would have been someone appointed by the emir, and that is Sultan Ahmed El-Jawar. Yeah. Now, the... Energy industry can be a part of the problem or a part of the solution. 
So can the energy industry be a part of the conversation about weaning us from fossil fuel? Or do you think that's not possible? I, I actually think they have to be because there's a tremendous amount of knowledge within that industry on not just the science of combustion and how we produce energy from a combustible product and but it's the deep understanding and, and expertise of how to build distribution systems that actually take that product to where it is consumed how to refine it into different types of of products that have various different types of uses the 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 know-how inside those companies uh, is absolutely essential to tap uh, in this in this transition. So let's take the example of hydrogen, which is a clean fuel that is produced from, in most cases, water, which is then applied. There's an electrical current applied to water that splits the the hydrogen and oxygen molecules and produces a, a hydrogen fuel, which is a clean fuel. The other technology uses natural gas. Typically, it's a reformation technology, which goes into a fuel cell, cracks the the CH, and therefore we have the H hydrogen, the C carbon on the other side. And, and you can do lots of things with the carbon molecules that come off or that are split out of this process. So their deep knowledge of how technology works, how how the whole ecosystem works in terms of not only producing energy, but distributing an energy and having energy used in an efficient manner is extremely important. And the other reason why it's important that they play a role in this is because they are extremely wealthy companies. These companies have a tremendous amount of resource available to them to actually play a very significant role in this transition. The problem is that the leadership of these companies has no interest in this transition. And why would they? Because they're so heavily subsidized and encouraged. We're going to drill. There's going to be more drilling permits in the U.S. between now and 2030 than there has been in the last, I think it was 20 years or something like that. It's unbelievable the amount of influence that these companies have in terms of the politics of energy. And as long as these leaders of these industries deny the fact that there is, that climate is actually being produced by us and by our activity and continue uh, to produce energy at, at an even larger clip than we have, we've seen in the past, given that there's going to be more demand because there's more of us and we're moving more and more into cities and the demand Profile is also changing quite substantially, right? From a very parts of the world who had more rural sort of demand profiles. Now that's becoming more urban demand profiles and it's becoming, we're becoming more energy intensive as a world. But at the same time, we've produced and have put in place more wind and solar, more renewable energy than we ever have. And those two sources of energy today are enormously competitive in some parts of the world they're cheaper and they also than than conventional fossil fuels which is typically the developed world and they also produce more jobs than fossil fuel industries and those jobs that the renewable energy industry uh, are producing are better quality jobs as well 
So there's no reason. I don't see the transition, Tom, without the oil and gas industry playing a very significant role. But they have to commit to not taking any of that stuff out of the ground. They've got to commit to leaving all of that fossil fuel material in the ground and they got to take the enormous resources that they have uh, and the people that they have and redirect that energy towards a greener future. Let me go back to the loss and damage fund. You talked about the funding of the fund. The other question I wanted to talk or at least explore is how the fund would be administered. And I think that is one of the critical areas up for discussion at COP28. Yeah. might be loans, whether it might be direct grants, who would administer the fund. Do you have any insight or thoughts on what direction that might go, if at all? Yeah. So let me take a step back because I think there's there's been an individual, a leader, who is a very, I think, important voice for the Global South. Uh, in Mia Motley. Mia Motley is the current Prime Minister of the Barbados, and she has created something called the Bridgetown Initiative, which is basically a call for a hundred for a trillion dollars in lending, increase in lending to the Global South for that part of the world to just uh, be able to adapt to climate change. And what she will tell you, and it's very compelling, is that the current international finance systems, the architecture of those finance, financial systems, basically were born out of the Second World War. And so they had a very different set of objectives than the current objectives today in terms of ensuring that there's development, sustainable development across the planet. And so the objectives of those institutions, the World Bank being one of them, the International Monetary Fund, those objectives are totally out of alignment with the needs of the world today, particularly the global south. And and she'll tell you that, and I think correctly, that the global south already has the effects of climate change on their balance sheets because they're paying for the damages that are being created by extreme weather events caused by the global north and the emissions that they are continuing to increase in terms of CO2. And so they're already carrying this cost on their balance sheets. They are indebted. Why? Because the global north lends from these institutions at 4% and the global south lends from these or borrows, sorry, from these institutions at 14%. Right. There's a huge difference in and it's completely unfair. So if you're asking a company that is already bearing the damages that you have created in another part of the world on their balance sheet, and you're telling them that they've got to fix that themselves with an interest rate to borrow against that is completely they're already swimming in debt. They've got this added pressure of 
having all of this damage on their balance sheet. And then they are told, well, you can go and get money at the IMF or, and there's, and, and, it, and they're paying like three, four times more than the rest of the world because of the exposure that they have on their balance sheets and because they're largely indebted countries. It's like a vicious circle, right? And you just, you can't get out of it. So the reality is that I don't know who's going to administer this loss and damage fund. I don't really think that matters. I think what matters is how it's administered. What are the principles behind uh, lending into this part of the world and supporting both their transition and their adaptation? And right now, their adaptation is the part that we've been talking about that's on their balance sheets. Richard, let's turn to where you either hope or see uh, what might come out of uh, COP28. Is it will be just platitudes or do you think some real work will get done and we'll get movement in at least one or two areas? So here's it's a really good question, Tom. And, and I'm hoping, I, I'm really hoping we, we get movement on the loss and damage fund because that's critical to to a just transition, right? So we talk about a transition. We, we really, and I, it's my mistake. I really should be saying that this tr- transition needs to be just. It needs to be fair for everybody and it needs to be equitable for everybody. And, cl- and currently right now, it's far, the farthest thing from that. The thing that, that I'm really worried about is that, and so Accenture just, I was a study maybe a year ago to look at what are the likelihoods of corporations got most, if not all major corporations in the world and a very big chunk of cities and regions have all made these commitments to uh, a, a zero emission world, right? And, and have targets that are 2030, 2050. So 50% to 2050. The prediction is that 93% of all those commitments that have been made in the private sector, largely in parts of the public sector will not be met by 2030. So I think this is exa- the same out- we're going to see the same outcome here with lots of excuses about why things weren't done and COVID and my mother had a hangnail last week and I wasn't able to actually make this target and the dog ate uh, my homework. And, and so I'm sure we're going to get some pretty colorful excuses about why things can't get done. But my very, my biggest concern is Will this be an aha moment where people go, oh, my goodness, we're no longer looking at a 50 percent 2050 target. We're now looking at 80 percent reduction. And there's general panic that ensues and stuff gets done. Decisions get made. Governments get off their backsides and actually enact legislation. If the rest of the if industry is not going to do it, the, the regulators the legislators are going to have, and I don't think that given this deeply corrupt political environment that we live in, where really the largest companies in the world, through all of their lobbying and political contributions, basically have just far too much influence on policy. I don't think anything's going to change there. So there's one, that's one outcome is, oh my goodness, it's, I call it the oh shit moment, excuse my language where you realize we're in deep trouble or the more likely outcome, which I think 
and I hope will not happen is, well, Tom missed it and Bob missed it and Betty missed it and Susan missed it. So I'm just a part of everybody who missed it. So I didn't like, why should I worry? We're all missing it together. No big deal. Just business as usual. And that's my biggest concern is that we're going to get to a point where there's going to be this opportunity for people to aggregate around a whole bunch of excuses why they missed their targets and just say, we all missed it together. Tough, right? Big deal. That's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that we will have this apathy coming out of this where Gutierrez and all the other, he's making some fairly aggressive statements about where we're going as a world. And I agree with everything he's saying. And the scientists keep telling us that we're, that we're getting to a point where it's going to be a very difficult world to adapt to. That's all going to not be listened to. And we're just going to go back to, we all missed it together. Big deal. That's my fear. Richard, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I have the feeling we may be able to revisit this topic around COP28 in a later podcast. That would be so great. And it would be re- it's going to be very interesting, Tom, also to see what the outcomes are concerning, concerning the allegations that have made, been made about Al Jabir and his oil and gas interests at this conference. All right. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century. I've linked to information on Richard's contact information in the show notes. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to him directly. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. Sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.